לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. rather important important uh, paragraph God says I I, I revealed myself with one with that name El Shaddai I did not make my name known as in in my name I upheld my covenant I remembered my covenant. And I hear, I hear their suffering. So therefore, say to B'nai Yisrael, V'otseiti, V'itzalti, V'gaalti, V'lakachti, and goes on, I will take you V'eveiti. And then, punchline, V'lo shamu el Moshe mikotz haruch v'havodah kasha. We want to... Translate, translate, translate. They didn't hear him. They didn't hear him. They couldn't hear because they were working so hard. Shortness of breath. And, and I, can you please expand on this? Rabbi Kalmanovsky, take us into the mind of the Israelite, listening to this great theological treatise. Tremendous passage. Um, as you as you started to say, these are the these four verbs, or with the one of "I will bring you to the land." These five verbs—that's the the core structure of our Passover Haggadah. Also, that's why we have four cups, and why the the fifth cup of "I will bring you to the land" is—you know—in the Middle Ages, there was a debate about whether or not to drink the fourth or the fifth, and that's why we leave it for Elijah. In our own era, lots of people drink the fifth cup of wine, and if anybody has ever seen the the a great Haggadah by Rabbi Menachem Kasher, the tremendous, tremendous Talmud Chacham of the early and middle 20th century. The the Israel Haggadah, he's got this beautiful piece of art for the fifth cup with all of the ships and all of the faces coming into Eretz Yisrael. It's quite, quite stirring. Um, and Moses gives them, in a sense, a very powerful affirmation of God as the Lord of history and God as the keeper of covenant. And he tells them the religious meaning of their suffering. And they're not having it. Um, they're not having it because mikotze ruach, uh, as, as you said, their shortness of breath, because of their hard work. And it's a very vivid account that the Torah gives you of these people. They are working to death. They don't have, 
they don't have it in them and they don't have it in themselves to access this, you know, religious theological vision. And one thing you might say is uh, that if, you know, the people don't have, if the populace that you're trying to touch and inspire doesn't have some measure of dignity and stability in their lives, it's going to be pretty hard to try to interest them in an abstract religious story um, because they just, you, you, you need a minimum amount of stability and affirmation and dignity and hope, and they don't have it right now. So Very perhaps you want to say in a, um, in a way that's critical of Moshe, you, one might say in a way that's critical of Moshe, uh, recalibrate your message, buddy. Um, this is not the time to start talking about grand theological ideas. You got to you got to bring something practical to the people uh, as Moses will, you know, as Moses has come just now has complained to God. Um, alternatively, you can say that this is just the awareness that the divine message hooks onto the world in a, you know, often God's message in the world doesn't it, it doesn't it doesn't go down so easy because the world can stink and the world can be very confusing and the world can be very dark and 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 crush your hopes as opposed to to support them. And so just the reality is that, that uh, human beings may not always be ready to hear what, what God has to say. Interesting. Barry, you have a take on this? Yeah, of course. So what I, what I would say is that, that expression, Kosa Ruach, is a fascinating expression because, Jeremy, as you indicated, there are four or five key verbs, and that in itself deserves more of a comment. But... Because of their situation, the Israelites stopped listening after Vahotseti. God says he will bring them out. He hasn't brought them out, and they can't listen anymore. Moses keeps going with this grand vision of what's going to be. But history is not always about the past or the future. It's about today. And where am I today? And they cannot get beyond today. They cannot have any appreciation of what is to come, or conversely, what they once had, the memory of the ancestors, which is supposed to spur them on in some way, it's supposed to lead them into a, to, a, to a better life. I wanna take a moment to reflect on the five verbs, because as you said, Jeremy, there's a question about whether we should drink the fifth cup, but that really is the key to the Exodus. The key to the Exodus is the direction. It's to bring them into the land of Israel. As we know from Jewish history and from the way the Torah is constructed, the Torah is against that message. We, we end before we get to the land of Israel. And that is a, in itself a reflection on this verse at the beginning where God appears to the Avot, the patriarchs, as El Shaddai and as Adonai to B'nai Yisrael. Because the way we see God changes. It changes in time across generations, and it also changes in their lives. I venture to say the three of us have been rabbis a long time. I would think that we think very differently about God today than we did when we first entered rabbinical school all these many years ago, because our relationship with God is ever-changing, and our understanding of God is ever-changing. And there is something striking about this idea that the purpose of the Exodus is undermined historically. And what are we left with historically? We're left with a story about the Exodus, which is what the Seder really is. We're not, you know, we often forget the Seder was designed by rabbis who were living in the land of Israel 
but in Galut. And what they had was that story. And that story is a story of redemption. And that has to transcend the Kotzeruach. So I, I'm going to have to meditate on what you said, because I, 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 while I agree, I'm sorry, while I agree with you that, that our, our reading, our, our weekly reading, our annual reading of the Torah stops at the end of Devarim, and of course the Torah stops there, you know, uh, at Simcha's Torah we go on chapter one of Joshua, and we, we are getting into the land in, in Joshua. I, 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 of course, you know, agree, you know, that, 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 story takes on a different level of significance but i maybe maybe we could say veveti i will bring you into the land is is to establish a degree of tension with the the people as they 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 stand at the edge of the land um but i i think that's that's something that i'm gonna have to think about a little yeah. more given what you said i want to go back to 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 something the relationship to mikotzeruach loshamu it's Moses' first real speech to the people, and it's it's he he bombs, he fails, <laughs> <laughs> and I I find that so reassuring, right? It, that Moshe could fail at his first you know major sermon, his first major speech, um, it gives us all a lot of hope. But uh, again, as you as you said, Jeremy, you know it's it's the people have no patience for this, and and. You have to appeal. I mean, sometimes I, I joke with people on the shul. I say, you know, you can give the I have a dream speech, Martin Luther King, right? As we're approaching the holiday, right? And there are people, I am sure there are, you know, people in the, in, in, in the pews that would say, oh, there he goes again, the dream again. <laughs> you know, well, the greatest piece of oratory in the American canon, and, <laughs> oh, the dream again. Enough, enough already with the dream, you know? That's really that's really interesting. By the way, first of all, you know this is always going to come up right around MLK Day, as yeah. as it is this year, and that you know, accessing that feeling of hope and meaning, and that there is direction to your suffering, there's meaning to your suffering, um, is obviously a major, you know, part of this Martin Luther King story and a great triumph of him as a leader. And there's I just have a small anecdote. Um, I used to have, and I don't even have anything to play a CD on now, but uh, but uh, I remember I once had some CDs of Martin Luther King's speeches, and uh, I, 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 they must have gotten lost in a move or something at somewhere along the way. But there's there was a speech given in Detroit um, a little bit before the "I Have a Dream" speech, and it's the first draft. It's like you, you can tell draft, it's, it's right. the same speech, and he's bombing. He's bombing. He's not going anywhere. There's no electricity. And you can, on this audio, you can hear Mahalia Jackson say, Talk about the dream. Tell him about the dream, Martin. Talk about the dream, yeah. And, oh my gosh, and it just, it, it lights up. And I think that that's just a huge thing. Tell him about the dream. And you have to give people, you know, this, this, uh, uh, I don't know what you'd say, the, the electricity of, of so, finding. So what I would say is that there's a, there's, Oratory can be successful and oratory can fail, you know, and, and, and it has to do with, with where the people are, where, where you are connected to your audience. As, you know, we give speeches all the time. You know, we know when it's great sermon rabbi and when it's like nice tie, you know. You know it's, we know when, 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 you're not, when we're not connecting. And, and there has to be this place where the people are with you 
and their 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 thoughts and their questions and curiosities and their their pain is 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 with you. There's nothing greater than when you are. It's like being a you know a performance that, that there's nothing better when it when it all works. And here it just fails, fails miserably. But we go on. Let's go on. Barry, I want you to I want you to react to chapter seven, verse one. I want you to talk to us about Elohim God says to Moses, I am going to make you a God to Pharaoh. So again, classic narrative compressing all these issues into, into this verse. What, what's going on in, in this verse? God, I got I'm going to make you God to Pharaoh, and Aaron will be your prophet. So Moses himself is a reluctant prophet. And as we think about him in his formation, he uh, wants to remain behind the scenes. And in fact, that is how God is. God is behind the scenes, and Aaron is going to be his front man. And I think it's an invitation for us to really think about what the relationship is between God and prophets and prophets and ourselves as the people. And here, Moses is going to fulfill the divine role of being behind the scenes. He's going to tell Aaron what to say, just like God tells Moses what to say. And Aaron's going to deliver the message. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, who is this good for? It's good for Aaron. We don't even get a reaction from Aaron. Aaron doesn't say, oh, I'd rather not, which would have been Moses's reaction. And he doesn't say, oh, thank you. I've always wanted to do this. And now I finally have my chance. He's completely silent. And that silence is going to be echoed in Vayikra after the death of his sons. Moses, on the other hand, is self-described as Arel Sifatayim, a man of uncircumcised lips, a stammerer. And I think here we're supposed to think of God in that way as well, because God actually acts behind the scenes. We want him to be active. We want to see him, but that's not really how God works. God sends his message into the world, and we have to respond to it. We don't get God himself. Interesting. Interesting. Jeremy, have a, you have a take on, on that, or you, we can move to, to, to the, 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 the dominant theme here. I, I want to just take this for a second. That, that what, we are, what we're getting set up in the, in the whole narrative of the plagues is a, real, is a, is a face-off. To face off between God and Pharaoh, and and uh, is this is this a good frame to see this story? Is this is this the frame, one frame, or or you know how how do you relate to this as the theme of of the Exodus story, Jim? Yeah, it's a good good and hard question. I I, I do think that there is a you know bullying quality to the story um, because. If God is all powerful, God could have done all of this without all the nastiness, right? Um, God could have said, you know, I'm going to make a, a, a tremendously, uh, you know, obvious sign, and and Pharaoh's going to go. But but from the very beginning, God said to Moses back at the burning bush, "Listen, I know he's not going to agree. He's going to have to be beaten into agreeing. Uh, he's, he's only biad chazaka. Is he going to?" to agree to this. So Pharaoh, the, the model here and the paradigm for the arrogant human being who thinks that nothing is more important or more powerful than himself has to be subdued. That is, 
as we say in the Amidah, machnia zedim. God has to be discussed as a subdue Pharaoh's arrogance and cruelty. Um, I, I have to say, as a modern person, I, I kind of wish it was simpler. Uh, I kind of wish it was was a little bit less bloody. Um, and I, I kind of wish that that the God of all the cosmos uh, didn't have to beat up so much on, on one arrogant ruler. But this is the story that I think the Torah is telling us. Pharaoh, who was, in the words of Ezekiel, calls himself the crocodile of the Nile. I'm the one who made this river. Um, human beings think that, that they, when they rise to power, you, you might be thinking of some people, you know, who are powerful in the United States, they rise to power and they think that the only thing that matters is themselves and their own achievements. And the at least part of the message that there is a God in the world is that there is a scale and a yardstick that is not about you. So I do think that God has to, to uh, uh, knock Pharaoh down. And in particular, as, as we were speaking about beforehand and, and people can do some reading, um, each of the plagues is in one way or another aimed at uh, a black eye for some element in, in Egyptian religion and culture, right? Like you, you worship the sun, no sun. You worship the river, no river. You worship the frogs as a symbol of fertility, I will turn them into a symbol of disgusting. So each, each element does want to un undercut Egypt as a culture. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you brought up a really important issue, which is that, that there's quite a lot of distance between us and our world and this world. And, and, and you know, our aesthetic sensibilities, you know, we, there's a lot, of, it's, it's just messy, it's ugly, it stinks. I mean, the, this narrative goes into, you know, all the senses here. You can't, they can't see each other. That's, you know, with the, the plague of darkness, it, it, you know, the, the, the Nile turns to blood, we get the, the frogs, it stinks, and we're going to have lice and scratch. You know, it's, it's, freedom doesn't come on a silver platter, I mean, to paraphrase an Israeli poet, the Hebrew poet, right? It's not, you don't get a b'magash cancer. It's messy. It's a messy, messy process. It doesn't, it's not aesthetic. What's aesthetic here, I guess, is the, the structure of the, of the narrative. But Barry, you have uh, any thoughts on, on, Yes. I think it's worth looking at the heaviness of the narrative. Things increase in heaviness. There's a heaviness in, associated with Pharaoh's heart hardening, which kavod sometimes means heavy. There is the kavod, which is God's weighty presence. And there's a way that things are going to weigh down as they move on. Um, you know, I was struck by what Jeremy said, the last plague is the denial of life, right? Pharaoh's son is taken from him, and that's when he capitulates. Everything else is happening around him, not exactly to him. He could finesse it, but once his own son is taken, then he gives in, because then he realizes that he's not in control. He can't brush that aside, especially since we're led to believe that his son is the heir. So it's not just that Pharaoh is touched himself, but the future of Egypt is threatened as well. And, and uh, go on. And, no, that comes in next week's Parsha, and I'm sure we'll have a chance to, to talk. So let's just reel back here to, to our opening scenes here. Yeah, you know, it's it, the, the scene, there's a lot of magic here, the, and magic displays that Moses has to, you know, Aaron turns the, 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 the rod into a tanin, a snake serpent or a crocodile. That eats up all the other rods. Uh, Barry, you, you had a 
It just yeah, you know, sometimes you wish the Torah had more than is actually there. So you <laughs> imagine the Egyptian magicians are there with their magic wand. Aaron throws his down and is made into a snake. They throw theirs down, made into snakes. Aaron eats theirs. And we're left wondering, well, how are they reacting? They've just lost their magic wand. How are they supposed to go on? It's not like Aaron says, fooled you, here it is. You know, that's the last we hear of it. I mean, I've never really thought about that before. Yeah. Well, there, there is, there is, because they're going to continue to do magic as we move on. Sure, there, there is the great humor in some of these aspects of the plagues. Um, I, I, I think that the Egyptians are portrayed as, uh, you know, doofuses. Like <laughs> Moshe and Aaron turn the river into blood, and they say, "Oh, no big deal. We can make more blood." <laughs> <laughs> So I want to I want to focus because I think I think this is a very serious theme in, in certainly in the Torah and also in the commentary on and, and I focused on lecha paroba boker go to Pharaoh in the morning he's coming out of the water and you're going to go stand next to the the bank of the river while he's coming out of the water and there's an overwhelming tradition in the midrash and Rashi and many other commentators that say you know what what is he doing at the Nile he's going to the bathroom at the Nile and and they are going to town on this. It's, it's, it's a satire on leadership. The same way, I showed this in a class this week, you know, the same way that, that um, Charlie Chaplin, the great dictator, even the producers, uh, uh, Mel Brooks, you know, what, you know the, the role of satire in depicting your enemy is, is very profound and has a strong tradition, not only in Judaism, I'm sure in world culture. Uh, do you see it this way? Do you see some of the stories... This way, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, I mean, this, this is a great midrash, and you could do you could do a number of things with it. You could say, you know, Pharaoh may be the most powerful person in the world, but he still has to go to the bathroom. Or, yeah. or you might say, um, you know, Pharaoh is befouling his own river. He thinks the river is the greatest thing, but he's befouling his own river, right. and and the river is you know the source of of life. Uh, life in Egypt, it, it, it turns back on itself and it produces this swarm of disgusting, you know, amphibians who, who they're in their dead bodies, you know, just decompose and stink in the street. Um, so I, th I think that there is, it, it gets crueler and crueler as it goes on and grosser and grosser as it goes on. But yes, it's, it's all about, listen, this is, we have a great tradition in Judaism in Midrash, you know, what is this like? I'm going to tell you the distinction between the human king and the divine king. And Melech Elyon and Melech Evyon, between the, the supernal king and the and the poverty more the poverty of a mortal king. And so part of this is, you know, Pharaoh, you think you're so hot. Not so. Let's talk about frauds. Well, many of them are just one big one. Uh, well, this is the this is the the machloket. This is the debate uh, between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Elazar, I believe it is. But Ta'al Hatzfardeya. I think and Jim Henson says something about frogs, also. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so the verse is and eight, chapter eight, verse two. By the way, thank you all of our listeners. We we're so happy to have you and all our viewers. Va'yet Aharon et Yado Mitzrayim. Aaron extends his arm over the waters of Egypt, and the frog came up. So there's a machloket, the machloket debate. 
it, was it one frog or many frogs? You know, in Hebrew, Hebrew is a kind of very dexterous language that you can have a collective singular, or is it one frog? So Rabbi Akiva says it's one frog that burst into little frogs. Yeah. And I think it was another, it was Rabbi Elazar who said, there were all the frogs there, but the one frog said, now's the time. Yeah, the one big, the one frog whistled and all the other frogs. Well, the frog, I think, is to mimic the snake. Because if you read the continuation of the verse, when the Egyptian magicians do it, it's in the plural. They're going to, obviously the magicians are in the plural, but so are the Sephardim. So just like Aaron has one snake that swallows up all the snakes, this is the one frog that's going to account for all the other frogs that the Egyptians can make as well. I mean, and the stench of each. I, mean, I think the... So what, that's, you know, that's what's missing in movies. Yes. Right? We see and we hear, but we don't smell. And sometimes that is palpable. You could, and here it is as well, because the, the language is redolent of a bad odor. Redolent? Um, redolent. So we, we, we move from Dam Sardea Kinim Arov Dever Shreen Barad. Barad. Talk to me about Barad. Hail, the end of the end of the Parsha. Barry. What do you got? Barry, well, what do you got? So the hail is historic. Nothing like this has ever happened to Egypt before. And this I think ties in with the, the weightiness scene is that these plagues are expanding geometrically. They're much greater than what's come before. And you could almost sense the foundations of Egyptian society and civilization crumbling. And in fact, the hail is attacking everything. It's doing a lot of damage as well. And I, I wanted to come back to the Kinim for a moment because the Kinim, I think, is where the Pharaoh's magicians say that they can't do this anymore, that, um, you know, this was the finger of God. And I'm reminded of the passage in Job. So Job loses everything and he maintains his composure. He blesses God. And then as soon as the skin disease is introduced and he starts itching, that's the end. He snaps. And there's something with lice that makes all of us snap in some way. That it's something that touches us, obviously, but makes us abhorrent to ourselves. It's, you know... We, we originated this, uh, this show at camp. And as you talk about lice, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the, what had become routine at the beginning of the summer, which is the lice checks, right? It, way back in the, you know, 20, 30 years ago, no, there wasn't, they didn't start off camp with lice checks. But now every first day of camp includes the mandatory visit to the yeah, and the mandatory lice them. check. And then going home, the day before you go home, the mandatory lice check. <laughs> and, and so what, what, you, I'm, what you're saying is that it's, it's destabilizing to the body. It's one thing for all of us not to be able to, you know, have water. That's right. And one thing for the whole thing to stink. But when it's on your body. It makes you helpless because there's nothing that it seems that you can do. And there's nothing more frustrating for a parent <laughs> then to see to have your kid with lice, you know, you have to get the special, you know, shampoo. 
<laughs> but but well, you didn't have that when you were a camper. There was I no lice not, check back then. There was no lice check. Nobody had lice. There was no lice. It's but because it was Canada. It's right. It was because it was Canada. It's, but but did they no? But did they actually have lice? They just didn't check. No, there was no. I I do not remember a single episode of lice ever ever. In 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 all the years I was a camper and a staff member at Vermont Canada. In the Berkshires, all of a sudden, there's lice. There is, because now you sound like Donald Trump. If we didn't test for COVID, we wouldn't find COVID. <laughs> no, no. There was there were other things. There was Empatago. There were <laughs> other kinds of diseases. But no lice. Not 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 one little little lice. Because because I remember those lice checks always turned up something. That's true. God. So okay. Barat, the, the, this, um, the, the theme coming through this, I want my name known. God, I want my name known throughout the whole world. Now, this is, this is interesting to me, at least partly because in this context with Pharaoh, it's this contest of power. Um, right? You have to know, Pharaoh, you think that you're God, I'm actually God. But it is also true that the theme of Exodus, from the burning bush to the Aseret Hadibrot to the to the thirteen attributes of mercy, is about the progressive revelation of the divine name. Moshe says at the burning bush, "What's your name?" And God gives him the combination of Ehiyah and Yudhevavhe. In today's parsha, it's it's portrayed even even though the word Yudhevavhe is used in Breshit. Uh, this partial portrays, uh, either because it's representing some sort of different tradition or some sort of nuance, that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did not have the access to my name. But I will give it to you. At the Ten Commandments, we begin with Anochi. And, and uh, after, the, after the golden calf business, God says, okay, I'm going to make my name pass, make my glory pass before you and pronounce the name. And I'll give you Adonai, Adonai, Rachum, Bechanun. So I do think that the theology of the Bible is to closely tied to the question of the presentation of the divine name, whether that's the power towards Pharaoh or the intimacy towards Moshe. All right, so we're, we're coming up to our close here. I just want to, you know, I touched on this idea that Moses, you know, failed at the beginning. You know, the speech fails. But uh, how would you rate Moses' job performance uh, approval ratings as he, as he proceeds through the Parsha? What do you think is happening in the mind of, the, you know, we have the, we have Moses and Aaron, we have God, we have Pharaoh, we have the Egyptian magicians, and we have B'nai Israel. So can you give me um, a sense of what they're experiencing, either through text or Midrash? Barry, you want to give it a shot? No, I think Moses is coming to the recognition that he can do this. And one of the things that we don't really think about, because we're so used to reading the Torah and we know the story, certainly superficially, very well as it unfolds, is that Moses doesn't know what's going to happen next either. Right? He's not privy to the sequence of plagues. God tells him to do something and he does it and it doesn't work. He tells him to do something else. He does it, and it still doesn't work. But now I think what's interesting about Moses is he doesn't back down. He doesn't go back to God and say, nothing is working. Maybe I need a new God. He keeps coming back. And he's growing, I think, in confidence 
that he can actually do this job. And what is his job? His job is to stand up to Pharaoh because no one can see God. So the only one that can actually stand up to Pharaoh is Moses himself. And Moses, I think, acquits himself very well. And I think, you know, going back to our earlier, the earlier part of our conversation, what was needed at the beginning was not a long speech, but some action. If Moses would have said, God's going to take you out of Egypt, and this is the first step, I don't know that there would have been the Kotzer Ruach that was described. But he kept going. You know, so, he had to get to the end of the story. So I think this is, we watch Moses grow as a leader, even though the situation on one level becomes bleaker and bleaker. Because if we don't know the end of the story, this is a bad story. What about God? Are we, are we watching God? be more gaudy, godly? <laughs> are we Body? getting a, be a better, a more, are we getting a sharper view of God here or, or, or not? I, I don't know. I, I would, I would uh, though turn, I don't know how to answer that question just yet, because again, I'm not, I'm not crazy about the, yeah. you know, uh, the fierceness, the, the, yeah, right. The, the gratuitous fierceness of some of this, but, what what I think is a very interesting verse, and it doesn't last because Pharaoh uh, does not, you know, the Pharaoh crumbles, but then toughens back up, or God toughens Pharaoh back up, and it changes his mind. By the way, Barry said, you know, after the, the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh then lets the people go. Yeah, but then he chases them back down at the Red Sea. So even then, he's he's trying to 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 uh, get back in touch with the bully who who was in control. But to me, the great line after the barad, after the hail, Vaislach Paro. He go, and he calls, Pharaoh sends them a message and calls them, and says to them, I've been wrong. Uh, God is righteous, and I and my people are, the, are, the, are in the wrong. We are the sinners. We are the wicked people. And so in that moment, you know, perhaps for the first time, it is, it is laid bare Pharaoh's struggle and ambivalence because he's not he's not arriving at the right conclusion yet, but he is becoming aware that there is just no going back. Uh, he's not going to win this, right? No question. Yeah, no question that this is a transitional transitional moment. It's the seventh of the of the plagues, and it has that that primary place. So we have to bring it bring it down. I mean, we're 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 leaving here on a you know on a cliffhanger. We we don't know how it's going to turn out for. The people of Israel, right? Last year they got out. I'm thinking that this year they're going to get out again. Well, you're going to have to wait till next week to find out what's going to happen to the people of Israel. Actually, two weeks. But next week we'll 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 be back here with you. We're so we're so grateful that you joined us uh, for this little half an hour of Torah study. Thank you so much. On behalf of Rabbi Chesser, Rabbi Kalinowski, we'll see you next week. Shalom, everybody.
רדיו קול רמה, 102.3 FM.